The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Uh, I hope all of you have a uh, handout. We are going to be going through this. The first time I taught this, I think it was a shorter uh, class, maybe six, six weeks, seven weeks, uh, this time longer. Um, I think the Lord is showing me I have a lot more to learn on Christian contentment than I thought I did. You know, one of the great dangers when you write a book is people will think that you are in some way an expert on that. I think instead what the Lord is saying providentially is this is probably the number one thing that you need to learn. Um, and I, I would not say I'm not presenting myself as somebody who um, has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. The Apostle Paul has learned, so we're going to lean on him this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be doing most of our work in Philippians 4 this morning. But as you're doing that, I'd like you to take your hand out, and I'll just give you an overview of the class, uh, the 12 weeks that we're going to be together or so. don't know the exact number of weeks, but something like that. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul and his statement in Philippians 4. So we'll spend most of our time this morning in Philippians 4, Paul saying, I've learned the secret of being content, etc. Uh, next week, I'm going to introduce, and I'll begin introducing Jeremiah Burroughs' work to you uh, even this morning, but we're going to talk more about a Puritan uh, pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs who wrote in the 17th century a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in that uh, book, he gives an incredible definition of Christian contentment that we're going, to, we're going to hear for the first time this morning, but I'm going to try to unpack uh, really over the whole course, but beginning next week, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Uh, week three, we're going to kind of sit with Christ in the school of contentment. We're going to learn from Christ's teaching and from his example how, how Jesus teaches us to be content. Um, week four... We're going to celebrate the excellence of Christian contentment, how beautiful a state it is, how marvelous it is that we can be genuinely content no matter what happens in our lives, how greatly honoring and glorifying to God that is. So I'm going to be presenting the beauty, the moral excellence of Christian contentment uh, to attract you. Uh, but then the next week after that, it's going to be much more negative. I'm going to hope that you will see how evil it is to murmur and complain against God. What a bad thing that is. So that those two weeks together will give, you know, the, the, the type of Christian persuasion or moral persuasion the New Testament so often gives, both positive and negative inducements. We should delight to be content. We should hate being discontent. And that together, I think, will help us. Um, uh, week six, and by the way, that week five, I'm telling you, that's just one of the most convicting things that you'll ever find. It, it really is a hard journey to find out how much we really do complain. I mean, it's not actually a minor thing. It's not like from time to time we complain. It actually might be a part of every day. And, and that we would get to the point where we would never complain or murmur against God at all would be a great goal. If we ever attain it, I don't know. But uh, that can be a difficult um, thing to see that, the truth of it. Uh, week six, we're going to talk about afflictions and trials. So let's be honest, that's the hardest time it is for us to be content. Uh, content and prosperity is hard, actually. It's harder than you might think. To actually be God-focused and Christ-focused when you're doing very well and prospering is harder than, than you might think. But I think we all know it's extremely hard to be content when uh, significant trials are going on in our lives. So we're going to look at how God uses trials and afflictions so that we can understand them and be content in the midst of them. Uh, week 7 is a topic that's been growing in my own mind. It was based on something a missionary said to me this summer. I was teaching this material to uh, actually three different missionary uh, gatherings this summer. Uh, and the first one was in Cameroon with some Wycliffe um, uh, missionaries, Wycliffe Bible translators. And uh, one missionary said uh, to me, I, didn't, I just never thought that contentment was a good thing. I didn't think it's something we should be content, like we shouldn't be content with people going to hell, you know, for exact, uh, you know that type of thing. And it occurred to me that, that it, there's a possibility, at least, of misunderstanding contentment. And I think what that person was talking about is something that I would call complacency, where you are just accepting things that God doesn't want you to accept. They actually wants our hearts filled with zeal, a passionate zeal for the glory of God. And basically, as we say in this church, progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness 
and the external journey of gospel advance and that we're not okay with our level of sanctification. We're not saying it's fine, I've reached the, as fi- high a level as I need to reach. And I'm, I'm okay with this sin habit I have in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. God doesn't want us to be okay with any sin habit in our life. And then on the external, he doesn't want us to be okay with people um, never having heard of Jesus. People groups that have never heard the name of Christ, that we are not to be okay with that. There's supposed to be a burning zeal in our hearts. The opposite of that then would be complacency, where we just accept things. Contentment is not complacency. To some degree, it's apples and oranges. Really, contentment has to do with afflictions and trials that happen and difficulties that happen as we pursue the two journeys. And that we're able, despite reversals, despite difficulties, to still be content and to trust God. And it actually then ultimately serves and feeds zeal. It keeps it going because if you're a missionary, you get on the field and things start going very badly and you're having difficulties or some members of your family are getting sick or some other things, you're having trouble with visas or the government and just, or, or just nobody's coming to Christ, it's easy to lose your zeal for the mission. And Christian contentment then will serve that zeal and keep it going saying, you know, God is still sovereign. He loves you. He is working through all of these things. This is part of his plan. So we'll, we'll talk about that uh, contentment is not complacency. And then we're going to talk, I don't know that I'm going to separate eight and nine, Uh, but maybe just contentment in the home life, starting with marriage and how important it is for husbands to be content with their wives as God's choice for them and and wives to be content with their husbands as well and how important it is that we not allow our hearts to wander and that we not drift in our affection for our wives as the marital vows say, forsaking all others, keeping ourselves only for this one as long as we both shall live. We understand the danger of a wandering heart And so we're going to talk about how contentment feeds holiness and health in marriage. Uh, And then how to teach your children to be content as well, because they're going to struggle with wandering hearts as well, and teenagers, uh, and then on, uh, to learn how to be content in life, content with what God has given them, and not be materialistic or not be ambitious for things God doesn't want them to have. So we'll talk about all that. Um, And then how to attain contentment, practical steps. Now, we're going to have... I think 12 weeks together, Um, I don't know, and there's just 10 weeks listed there. I'm telling you, the material that I've shared is going to be more than enough for 12 weeks. So I decided to stop at the number 10 and not go on to 12 and find other topics because I figured that we're going to be um, plenty busy with all that. So let me stop and ask you questions. I enjoy give and take when we teach, uh, when I teach. I really like to be interruptible, have you ask questions. if, If... if not, I'm going to ask you questions. And if it's like total crickets for a long time, I'm going to call, single you out, some of you by name, uh, especially the most shy and introverted, um, because I figure if I can get them to talk, then the rest will be easy. So let me ask you, what are you hoping to get out of this class? And how do you think attaining more and more the secret of being content in any and every situation would help you in your walk with Christ? Well, I love what you're saying. I, I think one of the most uh, beautiful verses, it's like a pre-evangelism verse, but for us as witnesses, is it says, always be prepared to uh, give anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, uh, but do this with gentleness and respect. So hope is a, uh, a buoyant feeling inside the heart that the future is bright. That's what hope is. And you just are excited about the future. You're looking forward to it. You're looking forward to the rest of the week. You're looking forward to the rest of your life. You're looking forward to all of eternity, actually. All three of them. I mean, you like what you're doing right now because you know God's in it. And you know that God's given you a purpose for the rest of your life. And it's going to be a life worth living. And you know where you're going to go when you die. And you can't wait to get there. Do you realize how few people have that? How, how they are, the scripture says, without hope and without God in the world. But if at the slightest affliction and turn, you start behaving like a worldly person and you start murmuring and complaining, then how are you different? And who's going to ask you to give a reason for the hope that you don't apparently have at all? So this actually would, I love what you said, Brian. That's, that's fantastic. All right, anyone else? What are you hoping to get out of this class? You mean content with with a lower materialistic standard or something like that? I think that's incredibly important. I mean, we're driven all the time by materialistic concerns, especially in December. All right? I don't know. (laughs) Like a bonfire, you know? It's like I still just can't get over the Lexus ads with the big red bow on the top of a new Lexus. What in the world? I mean, (laughs) it's like incredible. But I mean, maybe I shouldn't say maybe one of you have received such a gift at Christmas. I, I would be shocked. 
But um, yeah, just learning to ha be content with what we have and, and what we don't have. You know, yeah, that's a great word. Like God's watching to see when you finally reach that proper level of contentment, then the affliction will end. It's like, I don't think it works that way, but yeah, and I think one of the basic uh, insights that we have as Christians is that any sinful mental state that's in another person could be in us too. And actually the roots of it probably are. And so we shouldn't look at that and say, oh, what, a, what an evil person or what an evil attitude. It's like, you know, Lord, I'm sorry that I've got that same tendency myself. All right, well, let's go, go ahead and go on. Uh, thank you for those answers. That's really, really helpful. And thank you for being willing to walk to this side. Never mind. Uh, this side. <laughs> Never mind. Sorry. Good to see you guys. Yeah, these are not the popular seats over here. <laughs> so good to see you. All right, so let's dig in. And I want to begin, um, I just by way of illustration, uh, and some of you have seen the movie Count of Monte Cristo or read the book. I love that image of the dying Abbey Faria giving a treasure map. I mean, there's something very exciting. Maybe it's a very kind of, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't, it's not like I want to get like uh, huge boxes of gold and silver ingots and rare jewels and all this sort of stuff. But um, the sense of a treasure map is something that just inflames imagination. You think about, um, you know, Treasure Island with a treasure map and all that, X marks the spot and all that. But I think when we come to Philippians chapter 4, we're, we're coming to a treasure far more valuable than anything that's ever been written in a book like that. Um, and Paul speaks of a treasure of Christian contentment, learning to be content in any and every situation. I would love it if somebody could read Philippians 4, 11, and 12 uh, for us. Why do you think the Apostle Paul calls contentment a secret to be learned? A secret to be learned. So what we're saying is, by, by that language, it is possible to be a Christian, even a Christian for a long time, and not learn the secret. Do you think that's true? Have you guys ever had a day in which you've been discontent? I'm just talking about one day now, all right? So if you've had a single day in which you have been discontent, you've proven that it's possibly be a Christian and discontent. And actually, the implication here is you can go on in that state for a long time. Actually, it's possible to live your whole Christian life that way and go to heaven. Now, I think you will look back on Judgment Day and say, why did I do that? I could have been much more joyful and much more peaceful in Christ than I was. And what I would say is it would be beneficial for you to be as content in Christ as you possibly can be. It would be the most fruitful way you can possibly live your life. But Paul's saying it's a secret that he's, a secret to be learned shows it's not a given. It's not part of the original equipment at justification, the moment you come to Christ or at regeneration, conversion, that you will immediately be content in any and every situation. But not only that, he says it's a secret he has learned. I have learned the secret of being content. So what does that tell you? It's possible. It's not guaranteed, that's the first half, but it is possible. It's not a miracle. It's something that you actually can learn. And he's seeking to commend it to the Philippians. He wants them to learn it too. So that's why he's writing about it. Um, how would you define Christian contentment? There's a, a, a peacefulness to contentment. And a, I would say peace and joy are two, the two big ingredients in that, in that recipe. There's a peaceful joyfulness that goes with contentment. It's a state of soul that's peaceful and joyful. I like that. Let me give you Jeremiah Burroughs' definition that we're going to really unpack next week. Uh, it's a typical Puritan definition, very thick, lots of words. And uh, it really could take a whole hour and will next week to unpack it. Um, but he says this, uh, Christian contentment is that sweet inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So we're going to unpack that, uh, but I just want to float it in front of you at this point. Um, and I'm not even going to say another thing about it because that'll be next week's work. So what are some circumstances that you uh, feel or people you know, not you of course, but people you know would be strongly tempted toward discontent. Okay, finances. If you're really struggling to make ends meet, it's hard to be content in a situation like that. Cancer. Okay. And then just expand that out. Any chronic, significant medical trial. 
I think we would ascend. If you're in physical pain, day after day, hard to be content. Would you say it's impossible to be content? I think we must say it must not be impossible to be content even in intense physical pain. You're like, well, that's graduate school. That's like post, post-doc work on, on contentment. I'm, I'm in kindergarten, not quite there yet. Anyone else? Homelessness. Homelessness. Okay, that would be uh, catastrophic. Almost like you look around, almost nothing is going well in your life physically. That would be extreme. All right, so, and, and then other things as well. Um, I think when you start to list, like if the Holy Spirit were to show you times you've been discontent over the last month and what circumstances provoked the, that discontentment, I think we would all have reason for shame at how little it takes for us to become discontent. It's really amazing how little it takes. It's not not much. So let's think about driving situations. You're on the road. You're on the highway. Have you ever been discontent while driving? Has another driver ever made you discontent? No? All right. Well, that's just me then. All right. But I mean... Someone's driving too slowly in front of you, right? Someone's driving too fast behind you, all right? Um, You know, just various things getting on and off ramps, you know, things like that, various circumstances. Discontent at work, thinking that people should notice the labors that you do, uh, give you credit for what you do, um, or the circumstances are irritating you in some way. We talked about discontent about finances, People wishing that they had more money. Discontent in family life uh, as children with parents or parents with children or husbands with wives or wives with husbands. Discontent on sunny days that are too hot or cloudy days that are too cold. Uh, Discontent waiting for the new girl at McDonald's to figure out how to push the right button to get your value meal so that your entire experience at McDonald's took six minutes rather than five. And that really bothered you. Uh, discontent with homes, with cars, with clothing, with food, with our weight, intelligence, our credentials, shoe size, hair, hairstyle. Almost every area of life can be ground for Satan to attack and make us discontent. Even more poignantly for Christians, the kind of contentment that Paul describes is so rare. We actually know very few people that attain this level of consistent, stable Christian contentment. So let's talk about Paul for a minute. As we get to Philippians 4, what are Paul's credentials? I think it's valuable if you're going to take a seminar. I think one of the things the seminar organizers do is give you the credentials of the speaker. And so if if it's on uh, some area in your field, you want to know what the individual's attained in that that area. Uh, If it's got to do with sports, you want to know what championships the person's won or, you know, what their credentials are as a coach, etc. So what are Paul's circumstances um, and what are his credentials that give him the right to talk about being content in any and every situation. So how would you describe the Apostle Paul's life after conversion? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How long did he show him that? I would say the rest of his life. It was an education every day on how much he, Paul, must suffer for the name of Christ. I would say, if you look at Paul's life of suffering, I personally don't know anybody from church history that exceeds his credentials on suffering. I don't know a single person. 20 centuries. If you talk about martyrdom, he was martyred. He was probably beheaded. As a Roman citizen, wouldn't have been crucified. They probably would like to have crucified him, but he was freed from that because he was a Roman citizen. But he was executed for preaching the gospel. But before that, I mean, we know he, he lists his credentials of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. I mean, just think about these words. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged, flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Five times. It's actually mind-boggling. 39 lashes. I mean, you wonder what his back looked like? You know, he says, let no one cause me trouble because I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. 
three times I was beaten with rods. So five plus three is eight. That's eight severe beatings that he received for Christ. Once I was stoned. Well, that's execution. That's how they killed people. You don't survive that. And if you read about it in the book of Acts, he was stoned, and then the next day he was preaching the gospel again. So, I mean, I would think you would want to rest or convalesce somewhere. I mean, again, there's no indication that he was supernaturally protected from injury or damage in any way. He was wounded severely by these things. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times. And then he goes beyond that. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I think he mentions night first because it went down at night. So imagine being in the open sea at night when the ship is down and you're treading water and find something floating, a piece of wood, and you hold on to that and you don't see land anywhere, don't see any lights, and you pray. And then you spend the next day in the open sea as well, and then you're rescued. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Well, you look at all that and then what's written about him in the book of Acts. I mean, think about it. This man started two riots. How many riots have you started as you preach the gospel? Think about a riot. I mean, the one at Ephesus where they're like a bunch of wild beasts and they're ready to rip him to shreds, and he was going to go preach to them. I didn't think it was a good teachable moment, all right? None of his friends did. If you go in there, they will kill you, but he was ready to go. He started a riot in Ephesus because he was preaching against the pagan gods. He started a riot in Jerusalem because he was preaching against the Old Covenant. The time had come for the Old Covenant to end, and they thought that he had brought a circumcised person in, and so both of the, the pagans and the Jews alike, the unbelieving Jews, are are rioting on behalf of their religion. And Paul was the focus. So those are his credentials. Then you've got the immediate circumstance in Philippi. You read about it in Acts 16. You remember the story, how the Apostle Paul uh, and Silas and, his and their team received a vision from a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. So they crossed over going westward then to Europe rather than eastward toward Asia, the province of Asia. And so he goes there, and they go to Philippi. They find Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, and they don't find a synagogue as they usually do, but um, it's a place of prayer, and they lead her to Christ. And uh, there's some other work going on, and they're preaching, and they're just being faithful there in, in Greece, in Macedonia. And uh, there was this slave girl, demon-possessed, who was walking behind them, saying, these men, screaming in a loud voice, these men are showing you the way of God, or something like that. Which was true, but you don't want a demon saying it. All right? And so Paul, after many days, so he didn't deal with it right away. I find this interesting. He became annoyed at her, all right? And uh, drove the demon out. And she was in her right mind. The problem was that this girl earned a lot of money for her owners by fortune-telling. And now she couldn't do it anymore. So they were motivated by money, and they're enraged and incited the magistrates to uh, incarcerate and, and beat them, strip them publicly and beat them without a trial. And then they threw them in the Philippian jail. And the Philippian jailer was given strict orders to put them in the inner cell in stocks. So they're, they're in stocks in, I think, total darkness in a, in a first century prison. And they're restrained. They can't move around. And their backs are bleeding. And they've not eaten anything. And for all they know, they're going to be executed the next day. And at midnight, it says, Paul and Silas were singing praise songs to the Lord. Now, if that's not Christian contentment on display there, you'll never find a better example. Literally nothing going f well for them in the five cents world. It's actually probably the worst situation you can have. I actually don't think there's anything worse than being incarcerated and tortured by a human being. You know, I think I'd rather have a dread disease than that. Because here you have intelligent people who are trying to figure out ways to make you suffer and then maybe kill you. 
So there's a psychology to it and there's a difficulty to it. And in the midst of that, they haven't eaten anything. They don't have medical treatment. They might die the next day. They have no immediate prospects. And what are they doing? They're just praising God and they're worshiping God. And I think about it often. I say, oh God, would you give me whatever you gave Paul and Silas? Just give me that. I just want, I want that to be like the finish line of my sanctification, my internal journey. I want to get there. If I can get there, then I know I will, I will have uh, been as mature as I could be in this world. Um, and you know what happened. As they're singing praise songs, all the other prisoners were listening to them, it says. Isn't that incredible? So they're having an evangelistic effect. And then God sent the most amazing, miraculous surgical strike uh, earthquake there's ever been in history, in which no one died and everyone's chains fell off and no one escaped. I mean, that's just weird. <laughs> but there they are. And you know what? The Philippian jailer comes out and he assumes they'd have all escaped because he sees the doors open and that's his life for theirs. And so he drew out his sword and was about to kill himself. If ever there was a soul hanging over eternity, hanging over the yawning jaws of hell, that I preached about last week, that was that Philippian jailer. He was about to fall on a sword and die and go to hell. But a voice called out from the darkness, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for lights. And it says he rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he asked this question, the question every lost person should ask, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your family. And that very night they preached the gospel to him and his household and his household and they all believed and were baptized and they cleansed their wounds and fed them. And that was a very big part of the start of the Philippian church. That's the group he's writing to. So he's saying, you've seen this in me. He's going to say that in Philippians 4. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it in practice and the God of peace will be with you. So he's given them an example. He's got their credentials. He's got the example. He's got everything. Now, what are the immediate circumstances here? By the way, before I go on, how would you say that story is an example of Christian contentment? So true. No bitterness at all to the Philippian jailer. Zero. He doesn't want him to die. He has no vengeance in his heart toward him. Uh, the magistrate's a little bit different. Uh, that's a different matter. Because <laughs> they said, yeah, you can go the next day. He's like, no way. Tell them to come and ask themselves. But I think the only reason he did that was for, for religious freedom. He wanted to give freedom for the Philippians uh, there, etc. How would you compare your suffering to Paul and Silas's. I mean, how would you as, you, as you weigh them and you look at, like, let's say your worst day, the day in which you've had the most adverse circumstances that you've had, how would you compare it to that? Not even close. <laughs> okay. Not even close. And again, I, I don't think there's any way, you know, any reason to, to shame us into contentment. It's not that. But just understand that he has the right to talk to us on this topic. He's earned the right, he's an expert. And the Philippians knew it. They'd seen it. And they knew that he was in prison again. He's there in, in, the, in, in the letter to the Philippians. He's a prisoner again. So he's in jail writing them from jail. And what happened was they sent money to him by Epaphroditus. And so if you look at, uh, go to Philippians 4, you look at verse 10. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you had been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So what is he talking about? Somebody read verse uh, 18 uh, for us, if you would, verse 18. So they sent money to help him. And I, again, understand the situation in the first century in jail. There would be no, uh, no hot meals. There would be no blankets. There would be no concern at all for the physical care of the, uh, or well-being of the prisoners. That had to do with their support system. So you had to go and you had to care for them. That's why uh, the author to Hebrew says, remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And he says also, you, you sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accept the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. He's talking to the Hebrew Christians who came alongside those who had been incarcerated for their faith, which was very risky. Definitely guilt by association because what kind of people are going to come to, if Christianity is illegal in a country, who's going to come help the incarcerated Christians? Other Christians, just pull them in too. So they become bait for all of the hidden Christians there are in the city. So it took a lot of courage to go and to help, 
you know, a prisoner. But the Philippian church sent money by Epaphroditus. And at verse 10, he says, I'm very glad about the money. I'm so thrilled about the gift you sent. I'm really excited, but don't misunderstand my joy about the money. And that's where we get into verse 11 and 12. He said, I don't want you to misunderstand why I'm happy about the money you sent. So I'm not saying this because I'm in need. See that in verse 11? I'm not rejoicing greatly because of my need in the money. So if I can just paraphrase what he's about to say. I was fine before the money came and I'll be fine after it's spent. And I want you to know that. It's like, wow, is he being insulting? It's like, I want you to know your gift has not moved the needle at all. <laughs> it's not moved me off the dime exactly where I was before and exactly it doesn't affect me. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he says in 2 Timothy, of this gospel, I was appointed to be a herald and an apostle and a teacher. So it's a teachable moment. Their money to him is a teachable moment. What does he want to teach them? The yeah, this class. That's what he wants. He wants to teach them the topic of this class. Why does he want to do that? Why does he want to teach them that he's learned the secret of being content in any and every situation? Absolutely. Um, and he wants to instruct them the whole letter of Philippians. If I could tell you what the letter's about, if I could sum up the whole book of Philippians, the epistle to the Philippians, it's about attitude. It's all about your response and attitude to situations. It is, it, I've tested this again and again. Everything, almost everything he says in the book has to do with your mindset and your attitude, an attitude of humility toward other Christians, having this mind in you, which was also in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. You're going through the same struggle uh, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You're being persecuted for the gospel. I want you to not be frightened in any way by those who oppose. I want you to be filled with courage. I want you to know that for you, and not just for me, but for you, to live as Christ and to die as gain, I want you to have this right attitude about everything you face. It's an attitude book. It's a heavenly attitude book. It's a beautiful, amazing work. Uh, and, he, and he just he gives them the two journeys, you know, forgetting what lies behind, pressing toward what lies ahead, the internal journey of holiness. He's talking about the advance of the gospel. He said, I want you to know that my imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel. More people are hearing about Christ. He's just thinking always about, you can't control your circumstances, but you can control your attitude. And the book is all about what attitude you should have about everything, life and death, everything. And this is just like the crowning kind of capstone on that whole book is this issue. So he's, he's saying, I, he's not trying to insult them, not trying to say that your gift really didn't change anything for me. He's actually very happy about it, but not in the way that they would think. He, he's happy because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be stored up as treasure for them on Judgment Day. And it's evidence that they love Christ, and it's all about them. It's not about him chewing and swallowing food. It's like, look, if I, I've learned the secret of being content. All right, so let's go ahead to what he actually says. I've given you a quick summary of the book of Philippians, but we're running out of time. So let's dig into his description of contentment in verse 11, 12. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. So let me just say one thing. There are some things in Christian discipleship that we learn from reading, reading books, okay? Especially the book, the Bible, but reading other Christian books. So this is like, in my book, Infinite Journey, I talk about factual knowledge, okay? You learn precepts, concepts. Christianity is a learning religion. That's why it's always spread colleges and universities, wherever it goes. It's about learning, it's about books. But there's also an experiential side. There are things you learn by experience, by living. Generally, there's a combination. You learn the facts from the scripture, the, the truth of the Bible, but then you live certain things out. How do you see experiential learning in this issue of contentment, just even in the statement that Paul is making here? How did he learn to be content in any and every situation? You have to go through it. You have to live through it. That's why it's not part of Christian immaturity. It's not part of the day after you're converted. 
You have to go through certain things, and you will. God's going to orchestrate. He controls life, and he's going to orchestrate learning experiences for you. Every day, he's going to set up not just good works for you should, that you should walk in them, but learning experiences for you. What are those learning experiences going to be like? Combination of things you like and things you don't like. He is very wise in mixing them together. But he, Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, right? Living in plenty or in want. How? He's done them all. He's been feasted by Roman officials on islands after he had, like on the island of Crete or Malta. It was Malta. And they honored him because he healed his... uh, Father-in-law was dying with a fever, remember? And, and he had done a miracle by shaking off a poisonous snake into the fire, and they all thought he was a god and all that. And they, I'm sure they treated him very well. So he knew how to feast. He knew how to be treated like royalty. But we also know he knew how to be stripped and beaten and, and have nothing to eat. So he'd been through it. He's been through it all. That's how he learned it. Now let's talk about the word contentment. This is a very fascinating study. All right, it will not come across in any of the translations. None, because it's such a head-scratcher. It's the kind of word that you're like, I have no idea what this, why this is even here. The word, the Greek word that he uses is self-sufficiency. I've learned to be self-sufficient. That's the word. Now, if you know anything about what Paul teaches, if you learn, um, you know, you learn the lessons he teaches, self-sufficiency makes almost no sense at all. As a matter of fact, he said that God orchestrated one trial in the province of Asia, in 2 Corinthians 1, to teach him that he should no longer rely on himself, but on God who raises the dead. Jesus himself said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's like the entire press and push of the Christian life of sanctification is learn to not be self-reliant, to not trust in yourself and save yourself and be your own savior and all that, but to be, to be reliant on Christ. So, If you know that, and the more you know that, the more of a head-scratcher this word could be, self-sufficient. So I had to do a lot of thinking on it. I I had to say, why did he choose that word? First of all, it's just a well-known Greek word, and so he's reaching for that, like in the world of philosophy, etc. But he's not divorcing it, I think, from Christian meaning. This is what I understand. This is how I I tend to understand it. I know he means God-sufficient. I know he means Christ-sufficient. God is truly self-sufficient. So I want you to ponder with me the self-sufficiency of God. What does it mean to be self-sufficient? It means you don't need anything. Isn't that what it means? I don't need anything. I don't need anything at all. Is it true of God that he doesn't need anything from creation? Yes, it is. And one clear proof of that is the fact that he existed before there was anything. So does God the Father, does he need creatures? Does he need people to love him? Does he need angels to worship him? Does he need food and clothing and anything? No, 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 no. Any, anything you put in the created realm, any creature, anything at all, you can say God doesn't need, doesn't, doesn't need, doesn't need, doesn't need any of it. And go beyond that. Does he need you to serve him? Well, we already said he doesn't need anything, so he doesn't need you. He especially doesn't need me to serve him. You could say, well, that is true. In Acts 17, it says, The God who made everything is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples built by men. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything else. So God doesn't need anything. And this is the doctrine of God's aseity. Aseity, and there's a definition there from John Piper, aseity uh, refers to God's self-existence. From the Greek, a, meaning from, say, oneself. God exists from himself. He owes his existence and completeness as God to nothing outside himself. God's act of creation was not constrained by anything outside him, nor was the inner impulse impulse to create owing to a deficiency or defect, like he was lonely and wanted some friendship. 
Remember, we as Christians worship a triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit, we're not lonely. Filled with love for one another. Filled with relationship. They created out of fullness, not out of emptiness. So he didn't need anything. All right? God doesn't need us or anything outside himself to be God or to be happy. Creation does not complete God. So this is what I think Paul's saying. I have learned to be like God in this regard. Not self-sufficient, but like God is. God-sufficient. God is God-sufficient, and I've learned the secret of being God-sufficient too. So if I have God, I need nothing else. Nothing else? Nothing at all? Nothing from creation? This is where we start challenging the thesis. Let's start with basic biological needs. Okay? What's the first thing we need to stay alive? Air. Air. Good. All right, you medical people. People usually start with food. That just shows something about you. At any rate. <laughs> Got that food. Now, you can live a long time without food. Okay? So we'll start with air. All right? Got to have the passageways, you know, unblocked. Does Paul really need air? You're saying no. Everyone else is saying yes. Why do you say no? Because when he dies, he's going Okay. So if his air supply is cut off, what will happen? He will die and be with God, which is better by far. Yeah. You're like, all right, all right, I see what you're doing now. I get it. Um, so you're saying if he doesn't need air, he sure doesn't need water. And if he doesn't need water, he definitely doesn't need food. And he doesn't need the adulation of his co-workers. He doesn't need respect from the Roman authorities. He doesn't need to successfully plant churches. I mean, you can just put the whole list down. He doesn't need any of those things at all. He does need Christ, though. Because if he dies without Christ, he'll be condemned. But he has Christ. And in Christ, he has the fullness of all wisdom and knowledge, the fullness of all that there is in God. He's got everything he needs in Christ. So he doesn't actually need to eat. And it's like, well, I don't, I mean, I get it now. I get what he means by self-sufficient. He means that having God, God's sufficient, I don't need your money. I don't need the food it will buy. I don't need to be warm. I don't need to be esteemed. I don't need, need to be set free. And you're like, all right, I get it. I can see that there's a vertical aspect. Having God, horizontally, I need nothing. I just don't know that I can get there. Well, that's the very journey we're going to try to be on here. That, that is what it is. To get to the point where you realize that having Christ, you don't need the thing that you think you do need. The thing that's making you unhappy that you don't have or that you do have, there's an affliction. That, the, the point is, you don't need that situation to be the way you think you need it to be in order to be happy, in order to be joyful and peaceful and content. Having Christ, you have everything. That's the journey. So that's what he's saying. I've learned the secret of being content. And it's independent of circumstances, whatever the circumstances, right? Any and every situation. So to be in need, having no food at all. We've already seen that in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been there. I've been cold and naked. I already can do that. I've been there. I know what it's like. On the other hand, I know what it is to feast and celebrate. Like Lydia, the dealer in purple cloth. Do you know what that means, that she was a dealer in purple cloth? Purple. Royalty. Royalty, because... It was very, very expensive to make. So what do you think that tells you about Lydia? <laughs> she was well off, all right? She was a, a, a good beginning for the church in Philippi, right? And she invited Paul and Silas. She said, if you consider me a believer, please come and stay in my house. Do you think that they ever had some good meals while they were staying with Lydia? I'm thinking they did. So I know what it is to feast. Now, I want to talk later, not today, about how difficult it is to be genuinely Christian content when you're feasting, okay? That's a challenge. All right, but he says, I've learned the secret of being content. The word secret, it's like a religious, it's a, a special word, religious secrets. Like a, they had these mystery religions back then, and if you got this kind of special insight, then you could reach the higher, the next level, kind of like the Masons, like the 23rd level Mason or something like that. So they had these secret, secret keys of knowledge, like Gnosticism eventually went into that. He uses that word for the word secret. It's like a religious secret. I've learned the secret that unlocks higher knowledge. I've gotten to a higher level in my Christianity. So he's talking about the secret that he's, he's learned. Okay? Uh, what is the secret? It's right in the text. What is the secret? Where do you think you might find the secret? I mean, in the text. 
verse 13. Look at verse 13. Somebody read verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's where he tells us what the secret is. Now, the King James Version has Christ in there, but later manuscripts didn't have the word Christ. But we know he's talking about Christ. It doesn't matter whether it says the word Christ or not. So what's interesting here is the giving of strength. That's the key to everything. How is Christian contentment a display of amazing strength? It's a strong thing. And let me flip it around. How is murmuring and complaining a display of appalling weakness? Spiritual weakness. So let's start with the first half. How is Christian contentment in any and every situation a display of strength? Absolutely. I mean, those three things, I love that. And I've heard you say that before. It's such a blessing. Um, Here's what I think. You have a good quiet time tomorrow morning. You get yourself into a joyful, peaceful, happy state. And then you go out and take your stand on the battlefield. And you are about to be assaulted by the world, the flesh, and the devil for the rest of the day. Do you think Satan has any interest in whether you're displaying Christian contentment today? Is he interested in that topic? You better believe he's interested. Does he want you to be hope-filled, joy-filled, peaceful in every situation? No, he doesn't. And so he's going to come at you hard. Read about it in the book of Job. Now, you're not going to reach that level, but Satan came hard after Job. And by the time Satan was done with Job, was he content? No. What do you think, Landis? You're my Job expert. Was he content in all those many chapters, like 25 chapters? No, was he content? Yeah, he did well at the start, but it, it didn't, keep, it didn't yeah, end after that. Yeah, I mean, he basically said, if God were here, I would question him about his justice. It's like, hmm. um, and you remember at the end when God answers him out of a whirlwind saying, who is this that darkens counsel with words spoken with no wisdom? All right. It's like, and by the time he gets done effectively saying, where were you when I made the sun, the moon and the stars? And where were you when I made the ostrich? You know, um, what does Job do? What does he do? He repents and puts his hand over his mouth because it's in there. So here's the thing. It takes immense spiritual strength to take your stand in the midst of a field and face battle. Do you see what I'm saying? Battle. You're going to have to fight for joy. You have to fight for contentment. It's not an easy ride. And where then does the strength come from to see that battle through to the end so that you're as content at the end of the battle as you were when you entered it? It comes from Christ. I love it, especially in uh, Isaiah 40. Can someone read this? Did I give it to you in your handout? I've got a different thing. Somebody read Isaiah 40, 27 through 31. Do you not see how that is a direct partner to Philippians 4.13? I can do everything through him who gives me strength or strengthens me. Isaiah 40 is all about strengthening of the weak and weary. Everyone gets weak. Everyone gets weary. It's almost like God's business to bring you to that point. He wants to bring you to the end of yourself and then beyond. It's not that he wants you to sin. It's not that. It's not that he wants you to murmur and complain. It's just he knows that that weakness is in you and he wants to show it to you. And when you start to complain about far less trials than Paul ever went through, you should repent and come humbled to God with new vigor, seeing how sinful you still are, and ask for him to grow you. And that dynamic is essential to your growth, isn't it? It's not because you've already arrived. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the healthy and the righteous, but those that are sick and weak and sinners to repentance. And the whole journey is one of repentance. So when he says, I've learned a secret, and the secret is I can be content in any and every situation through him, Christ, who strengthens me, that's how I do it. It's nothing that complex. It's a matter of abiding. It's a matter of resting and remaining in Jesus and fighting. And it's hard. I mean, you have to learn. It's hard. Well, that's all the content I had today. We've got a couple more minutes. Can we uh, leave it for some questions? Anyone have any questions or comments? That's a great statement. I, I actually think, Stephen, I don't see any other way here in the West. He says, I've learned, what does he say? I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I don't think anybody in this room is going to be in need in, the, in calendar 2018. I mean, I think it's a highly unlikely. Now, brothers and sisters around the world will. 
but I don't think we will. So I think at that point, the discipline of kind of an artificial need, fasting, can be helpful. And what it does is it can show you how dependent you are on the blessings of life and how much they've become idols. Maybe that's the answer to that. I don't know. Any other questions, comments? Yeah. I think so. I, I think probably we here in the prosperous West, um, I think without discipline of self-denial that's intentionally brought in, not artificially, but you know what I mean. We are choosing to deny ourselves certain blessings that are in and of themselves good, but have probably taken too big a role in our lives without, to some degree, 1 Corinthians 9, beating our bodies and making it our slaves lest we be disqualified. In in other words, a a willing self-denial of good lawful pleasures. We will never know the secret of Christian contentment. I actually don't think it's possible. I think you have to have a higher level of self-discipline and certain blessings that God gives or we will be discontent, roving, kind of roaming uh, people like Satan is. You know, I, I didn't cover that, but there's that restlessness in our hearts because we've not really learned this secret. Wouldn't you think, Alex, it would be wise to assume there's demonic activity? That the world, the flesh, and the devil work together. Two of them are external to us, one of them internal. And so we have sin living in us. I think of a walled fortress like John Bunyan in, in his book, Holy War, that we're like a walled fortress, medieval fortress, and we're being besieged, and we've got traitorous enemies inside that get up in the middle of the night and unlock the door and let the world and the devil in. And so we just have to assume that battle's going to go on. So you can have your quiet time in the morning, get yourself to a peaceful, joyful state, and then it's just bring it on. You, you have to assume that Satan, that demons, are going to orchestrate trials to make you miserable. So I would say I think it is both the flesh and the devil together in these trials. So, Dave, would you close in prayer? Thanks. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.